tackling sham contracting and forced casualization, Aussie content on Aussie screens, the voice a step closer, and good news about hydrogen. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and after a short one-week break, I am back with the great, the glorious, the absolute viral Guardian article publishing, <laughs> best-selling author of Tune On and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, my wife, your friend, the great and glorious Van Batam. How are you, Van? Uh, well, as you know, because we're married and live together, I'm all right. I've been in Brisbane. I just want to thank my comrades at the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union for having an amazing time as a speaker at their Fearless Sisters conference in beautiful beautiful, sunny, warm, comfortable Brisbane. And uh, as listeners of the show know, Ben and I live in beautiful Ballarat and it it's cold. It is cold, but, you know, it's even colder when you're out on the grass. And you've mentioned the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union van, and I think it's an appropriate uh, juncture for us to give a shout-out to the AMWU members who have been on the grass, taking industrial action at Vizzy in Shepparton for 20 weeks now. You can you can check this out. Uh, there's a megaphone uh, petition to help raise money for these workers. These are workers who, for in some cases decades, had not taken any industrial action whatsoever. Uh, they are now currently bargaining they were offered 2.6% per annum, which, you know, inflation numbers today, 6.8%. That's a huge real terms pay cut for these workers. Busy is Australia's largest privately owned company, annual turnover of $7 billion. Which is a lot. What's the difference between $7 billion and $7 million? About $7 billion. It's a huge, huge amount of money, almost unfathomable. Anthony Pratt, the owner, his personal personal uh, monetary worth is estimated to be fourteen billion dollars. You know, one of the richest people in Australia. Uh, now, these workers have been in these negotiations since uh, last year. They had two days of stop work in January, uh, and now they've had to keep going. So, full solidarity to them. We had a we have given them a shout out before. Uh, I think we got, they were about eight weeks into their action when we last gave them a shout-out. Uh, we got some correspondence during the week, and I just thought, given you've been at an AMWU conference, it was worth us letting people know you can make a contribution. There are bank account details uh, to help these workers who in some cases are going without significant amounts of pay now, and it's been 20 weeks. We, we're getting up close to half a year where these workers have been having to take this action. Sadly, that's the state of industrial relations in this country. Of course, you should be a member of your union. These workers have stayed strong with the support of their union all this time. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, join your union, whether you're in manufacturing, whether you're in care industry, whether you're uh, in transport or whether you're in uh, the arts or higher education van. Yes. So we've got some solidarity with our comrades from the National Tertiary Education Industry Union who are going out on the grass in Newcastle, of all places, Ben. Yes, indeed. It looks like uh, the University of Newcastle 
has been conspiring, uh, and I use that word in as broad as possible non-legal term, uh, to with the bosses union in this sector, the Australian Higher Education Industrial Association. They all have if they one of the things you should always remember is if you've got a boss, your boss has a union. So you need a union too. And in in the higher education sector, that union for bosses is called the Australian Higher Education Industrial Association, which is briefing the University of Newcastle on how to scale down, in inverted commas, uh, which is cut for the rest of us, the conditions and pay of workers at the University of Newcastle. Now, as I understand it, Van, and correct me if I've got this wrong, but they're doing this uh, around the whole sector. They're trying to have these conversations about what to do in order to uh, maximise the boss's advantage from the industrial relations laws that were passed which are designed and are designed to help workers get a get fairer pay and more secure jobs. There's a wonderful line in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, which is often like cited as the the foundation text in the modern capitalist system, where Adam Smith actually talks about how you know workers in combination, that is forming unions, will always have the bosses and I quote, clamoring for the magistrate. So not only is not no sooner do you pass a law to try and rebalance, you know, the like the the equality of working people and the dynamics of the workplace, but the bosses get together with all their money, rubbing their little hands together, looking for loopholes and workarounds. And that appears to be what's going on at the University of Newcastle, where very broad claims from the from the bosses from the university mm. uh, are the reason why. Why this is all this action is all being referred on, and it's all part of a strategy. And I'm sure it's just a coincidence that the vice chancellor, that is the boss of the University of Newcastle, happens to be on the executive of the bosses' union. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there's absolutely no correlation. Totally coincidental. Yeah, but they're they're going out. So the union members, the academics at the University of Newcastle, are going out um, in order to bring the university back to the bargaining table. Uh, but it is it is really important, you know, part of the image of uh, working people that's fostered, by the way, by bosses and capitalist interests uh, is of this, you know, brawny, boyo mm. kind of blue collar, the, you know, yeah. the only unions are, are manual labour unions and the rest of it. And that image is sort of used as a bit of a bait and switch for bosses to try out some of their very worst and most exploitative industrial behaviour and set up new models for attacking workers through places like universities where people don't think of them as workplaces that are full of union members that require the same kind of negotiations and bargaining and workplace rights mm. as everything mm. else. A reminder that the, and this is to lead on to the next discussion, is that the mass casualisation of workers in this country and shifting what used to be like full-time permanent jobs with job security and established conditions onto casual contracts Mm. was something that really got pioneered on university campuses. Absolutely. And, you know, it is interesting because at the moment uh, anybody who's uh, on social media will see that uh, the ACTU, Australian Unions, are in Canberra talking about uh, the mass casualisation of the workforce. Uh, anyone who listened to the Weekend Wrap will have heard me talk about the Centre for Future Work report and the ACTU report about the gig economy and how it's infiltrated 
uh, the care industry. You know, uh, care and social services is now the second largest uh, industry or sector where there is uh, gig work. So transport is number one. Uh, care, uh, the care sector is number two. Uh, Casualisation obviously is in um, the tertiary education sector, but also in mining. Uh, and there's been some incredible, just some incredible things uh, come about as a result of these experiments. Uh, and really, you know, the work that unions are doing right across the board from the NTEU in higher education, uh, the mining and energy union. Uh, in obviously mining, uh, you've got uh, people like the Health Services Union in disability uh, support, uh, looking at what's going on there. Uh, the finance sector union, you don't often think about the finance sector as an area where there's mass casualisation or underpayments uh, or labour. The public sector, it's being discussed really openly now about how the last 12 months of the Morrison government, they used $21 billion worth of labour hire contracting. Now, in the first 12 months of the Albanese Labor government, they've used $1.2 billion worth of labour hire contracting. And even that they think is too much. And I look, I agree, but you've gone from $21 billion to $1.2. That's a pretty significant change. And they've done that by in-housing those workers, by bringing those workers actually into the public sector, paying them properly. Uh, and in Senate estimates this week, we've had Michaelia Cash, uh, who is, of course, the Liberal spokesperson for industrial relations and shadow attorney general, and just all round awful person, uh, attacking the Albanese Labor government because they do have a policy of same job, same pay, and that you shouldn't be allowed to use casualised or labour hire workers or sham contracting workers to reduce the wages and conditions that are paid to workers who are doing the same job as other workers in the same workplace. Yeah, I mean, it's always a divide and conquer, isn't it? And, you know, in enforcing industrial secrecy and cultures of not admitting what your conditions are or what your pay is, which it's is, a way of keeping which workers is something, separate. Which is something Labor has now abolished, right? It's You can no longer force people to keep those things secret, that transparency element. But we know transparency can only go so far. Unless workers are actually given the systemic power to take action, to band together uh, and are supported to do that, then they might know they're being ripped off, but in some ways they can fuel competition between each other, right? Oh, absolutely. And to get back to the theoretical level, which I love talking about, yeah. you know, one of the reasons why Ben and I and people who share our values believe in a big public service and how important that is. It's not only because the ridiculous experiment of privatisation has shown us that when you privatise services, service disappears and prices go up. Mm. Ask anybody who's caught a train in the United Kingdom where a distance, which is like Sydney to Newcastle, which is from mm. memory less than $20 in Australia, will cost you $100 uh, Australian dollars if you get in early enough and there are hardly any services and it's this and it's that and you're standing for hours and the rest of it. Like the not only has privatisation exploded the myth that the private sector does things more efficiently mm. or, or that the private sector does things more cheaply because we know mm. the private sector starts demanding more and more money from government mm. to ensure that services are 
I maintained, but also it's a way of driving down. It's it's a way of lifting conditions and standardising pay to have a big public service mm. because if you have a public service that's paying people properly, giving people job security, that's pioneering accessibility and various other kinds of workplace conditions, well, why would you work in the private sector? It makes the private sector compete with what the public actually want in the workplace by having a large well-resourced public service that offers the kind of jobs that we need, that provide services, but does them at a standard that all workers have the right to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely, Van. You you hit the nail on the head here and and you know there are some there are some really key stats that that back that up. Because there is there is a misnomer, I think, that people have that somehow or another if you're a labor hire worker, you're going to be getting paid more because the cost is more. Uh, but that cost is a big, you know, it's a clip that goes to the company that runs the worker, right? Or if you're a casual, you get this loading. The research clearly shows those loadings just have not, the base rates haven't kept up and therefore the loadings have been eroded. And in fact, now casual workers get paid less. So you've got this situation where the Morrison era was using labour hire and casualised workers to undermine the paying conditions of public sector workers. And for a while there, pay rates in the public sector were growing even more slowly than they were in the private sector, which is really unheard of. Australia has for a long time had a situation where public sector wages tended to grow faster than private sector wages. Um, But during the Morrison era, that inverted itself and ended up being a drag. And there's lots of research about how wage caps helped drag down wages. But some of these stats here, I just want to run through a couple of them because people need to really understand the difference. So casual employees overall across the board earn $11.59 less an hour than permanent employees. So an hour. An Not hour. $11 less a day or $11 less a week, $11 less an hour. An hour. So if you're, you know, so when people talk about the casual loading, let's be really clear that even with that taken into account, there's eleven dollars fifty nine less an hour. That's the average. That that's a twenty eight point six percent gap. So that's nearly thirty percent difference. Like it's a huge, huge gap. The, you know, the gap between uh, casuals and permanents uh, on this in the same occupation. Uh, with the same skill level uh, is about four dollars an hour, eleven percent, right? So when you get when you get right down to the nitty gritty, at an average level, it's like thirty percent. When you compare, if you and I were, you know, same education, same skill level, same experience, and I was permanent, and you were casual. Which, by the way, more women are casuals than men, vast majority. You'd be paying, you'd be getting nearly $4 less an hour. Um, 50% of casuals are saying that they're worse off now than they were 12 months ago. That's up from 36% uh, a year ago. And 2.6 million workers in Australia are on casual working arrangements. 55% of them are women. These are, these are damning, damning numbers. But then we've got to consider them in their compounding effect when you add in the gig economy, when you add in labour hire, all these non-standard, non-traditional uh, forms of work, if you like, uh, because there are 
around 600,000 workers who are employed through labour hire. Now, a lot of those were employed <laughs> previously by the Morrison government using those mechanisms I talked about before. Uh, 81% of labour hire workers, 81% of labour hire workers have full-time hours yet do not have full-time jobs. Their employment is insecure. They can be sacked at a whim. Um, 84% do not have access to any form of paid leave and no guaranteed minimum hours. These are phenomenal numbers. Hundreds of thousands of our fellow Australians who are just denied what we believe to be the minimum conditions that they should be entitled to. Uh, and they're paid, uh, and this is this is a direct quote from Sally McManus, leader of the Australian Trade Union Movement. This is one of her tweets. Labor hire workers are being paid on average, on average, $4,700 a year less than people doing the same job for the company they work at. Labor hire has become a workers' rights avoidance scheme for too many big businesses, a way to casualise their workforce and pay people less. Now, uh, contractors, we'll talk about contractors in more detail in a moment. There's another 565,000 of those. But just to focus on labour hire van for a moment, Sally's absolutely right. When it comes to the use of labour hire as an avoidance scheme, uh, because BHP is the classic example of this, right? Look at my face. Yeah, I what's know. my face doing? Your your face is doing the just I they're just boiling with outrage about the 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 the, the evilness, the grubbiness of of these uh, of what these numbers represent, right? I hate grubbiness, Ben. Yeah, I hate it. Corporate grubbiness is also the worst kind of grubbiness. It really is. It really is. Because it's, you know, personal grubbiness that affects individuals. Corporate grubbiness affects nations. Well, and and the corporate grubbiness here is just, I mean, it's phenomenal. It's grubby. The BHP example is really, I think, a classic, right? Because they've come out hard against the same job, same pay uh, position. Oh, it's outrageous people doing the same job should get the same pay. Well, they've said. How is that outrageous, actually? Like, what is the argument that these people are? What is the argument on any level that they're making? Well, they they say it'll cost the company one point three billion dollars. Yeah, and how much money have they got? Well, let's also be clear. When they say it'll cost the company one point three billion dollars, it's not like that money gets put in a blender and then flushed down a toilet. That money goes into the pockets of the workers who do the work for BHP. So while it costs BHP money, yeah, it does. One of the most profitable companies in Australia, in the history of the Commonwealth of Australia, the money actually goes to the people who do the work. So it's not like, oh, well, we'll just get the money in a pile and set it on fire. No, no, no. We'll put it into the pockets of the people in our communities who will spend it on goods and services that will be produced by the communities in which they live and hopefully continue to grow the Australian economy as opposed to Oh, I don't know, going to executive bonuses. Millionaire uh, shareholders, Ben. What about the poor millionaire shareholders? What about those poor trust funds what in Singapore? What do they spend their money on? This is what I just can't fathom. Like, when is enough enough? 
Yeah. Have I mentioned on the show before? I think I have about that line from Chinatown, where the character played by yeah. Jack Nicholson says to the the capitalist character, "You know, how much food can you eat? How many holidays can you go on? How much more can you buy? What do you, what do you need more for?" And he goes, the, "You know, what do you, what do you, what else is there left to buy?" And he goes, "The future." Yeah. And I think of that every time I look at Elon Musk, and I know this is not an episode about that. And also, uh, it's a family friendly show, so I'll leave it there. But look, BHP have made this argument or are making this argument that it'll cause labour hire demand to drop off a cliff, which is interesting because what they don't say in the comments about this particular topic when they're asked by the boss's pamphlet, the AFR, or uh, Murdoch's um, toilet rag, the Australian, uh, is that in actual fact, BHP owns a labour hire company, uh, which BHP uses to hire workers on lower wages and worse conditions than it has in its mines and facilities around the country who are employed by BHP. So in actual fact, when BHP talks about demand dropping off a cliff, we can take their word for it because they are both the supplier and demander of labour hire in the mining industry. (laughs) It's just sick. It is sick. It's genuinely sick. How much is enough? What is wrong with sharing? Well, you know, the... But it's just whenever they do this, I'm reminded of that that wonderful piece of analysis about anyone who fights minimum wage. Anybody who fights minimum wage is someone who is saying they would pay you nothing if they thought that they could get away with it. And it's this kind of thing, oh, well, you know, demand for labour hire services, the ones that we created so we could pay people less for doing exactly the same job. Yeah, exactly right. They have created. Oh, and you can just bet somebody with an with and you know we can all I'm sure imagine a list of names exclusively used by pratty white men, like uh, coming up with this idea, going, yeah, man, we will just set up our own labour and go, oh, getting a bonus. Oh yeah, I bet. Oh he, yeah, I bet that guy got a Christmas bonus, don't you? The one who was like, we'll just start our own labour hire company. Ha <laughs> ha! Look, they did. Operation Services uh, has been operating for four years. Uh, and yeah, that's that's the company that BHP uses. So when we're talking about this, we need to understand that there are really strong vested interests, who, <laughs> like BHP, like BHP, <laughs> uh, who want to keep the money in their pockets rather than in the pockets of workers. I mean, these are oh, but what's of- wrong with that? Well, Sorry, I'm just I'm preempting the Twitter response. What's wrong with that? I mean, BHP, they run the company, they put the money up, and it's like, well, who's doing the work, love? Absolutely. Who's doing the actual, you know, like extremely dangerous work given the kind of resource extraction the BHP are involved in? This is what I find absolutely amazing. I, I believe someone, I think his name was Carl Ben, made the point that the labour of the workers actually enables the work to be done. That's why we call them uh, workers. Amazing. Imagine. Well, this is the, the thing that blew my mind about this, you know, putting aside for a moment, BHP as a, as a case study in, in why that system is broken. If you go right up to the macro level, the labour hire industry in this country is estimated to be worth between 30 and $40 billion. This is an industry that only exists- To ticket clip. Yeah. Basically, something that 
you know, people were like, oh, sure, there might be some short-term gaps for highly skilled workers in, you know, there might be a need for nurses. You know, there might be a shortage potentially of nurses in a particular hospital and uh, we only need someone to cover a couple of shifts while someone's sick. Uh, So if there are a couple of people who want that flexibility, sure, that makes sense. And that's one of the industries where labour hire kind of got started was in healthcare where there's always a need for more staff, always a shortage. And so some staff went, actually, I'm happy to work in a different hospital every week or I don't want to work every shift, whatever. You know, you can see why there are particular industries or particular sectors where there might be short-term needs for highly skilled workers who can then charge higher wages. They can say, actually, you need me more than I need to come to you, so I'm going to get an extra 20% than I would normally get. You know, I get that. But what we have, what has happened is that employers, bosses and corporations have created and exploited loopholes to create a $40 billion industry of ticket clipping. We have people working in mines alongside each other, earning different rates of pay with the same level of experience, the same expertise, the same productivity, getting paid different amounts. But not the same opportunities. Absolutely. And it's and it's not just... Uh, in labour hire as well, because we know that contracting, sham contracting, is, as I said, adding nearly over half a million people who are unable to subcontract their work. So I want to be really specific about this, because I do some contracting work, you do some contracting. My whole career is contracting work. Right. Now, there is there is contracting and there is sham contracting. Contracting is where you have an agreement with someone based on a contract to do a piece of work for a set fee um, that might go on for some time. It might be very short term. That usually involves the person getting paid significantly more than the minimum wage and usually quite a bit more than award wages. That's how contracting came about. Engineers were the kind of classic first wave of contractors where they went, Actually, my skills are in high demand. I can charge more than if I just work for one company. Or in my industry, like in the arts, we don't expect to be in in permanent ongoing positions. They're extremely rare if you're a creative practitioner because you work project to project, job to job. Yeah. And I just do like to do a shout out to the the half of Mia, um, Actors Equity, who represents um, performance professionals mm. in this country, who are an absolutely extraordinary union and show how to get like power and influence in your workplace because actors are a highly highly unionized part mm. they're one of they've got some of the highest union density of any profession in Australia the work is inherently insecure because you mm. go from film here TV here especially in Australia mm. stage here and you will have minimum conditions and you can make a living as an actor with protections and securities because they are highly unionized mm. and and equity with saying what one in all in uh, you touch one touch all means that actors have been able to campaign for and receive minimum call outs minimum rates of pay you know living allowances and all of the things that are required to give them a good standard of living in a highly insecure industry and a shout out to Professionals Australia, which of course represents professionals across a whole range of white collar industries who are 
often project to project type work. Uh, so, you know, again, whatever whatever you do, there is a union for you. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, check out that link, sign up, you know, your union will be in contact with you and you will, you will get that protection. But by contrast to the kind of contracting that we're talking about, there is sham contracting. And increasingly we're seeing this play out in the digital space. That's where they pretend you have, they pretend that you are a, a, you know, project, like project by project worker. They pretend that you're just, you know, coming and going when actually you are an employee who they are deploying uh, in this illusion of work conditions based around individual practice when they are not individual practice. And we've seen it in transport. We're seeing it now in the NDIS. We're seeing it in uh, aged care uh, where this, this digital sham contracting uh, using platforms, and we should be really clear here, you can use platforms to employ people. Uh, and in some of the industries we've talked about, uh, there are employment-based options uh, in the NDIS, in nursing, where they use platforms to engage people as employees uh, and they don't exploit people because what this research from the Centre for Future Work and the ACTU and others have discovered is that the rate at which people are being essentially forced uh, into becoming quote-unquote sole traders is outpacing the growth of employment, massively outpacing, and that workers on sham contract arrangements earn $242.80 less a week uh, than people who are genuinely independent contractors. over a year, that's more than $12,500 less. You know, this is a huge amount of money uh, when it comes to super as well, because if you're a contractor, there's no employer, so there's no employer contribution to your super. $400 million a year in super that is not being paid because of this sham contracting. We've seen it explode in the NDIS. We've seen it explode in transport. You know, this is a huge amount of money. Now, when it comes to comparing uh, what a sham contractor gets to, say, someone who's just employed, that's more like nearly $6,000 a year difference. It's outrageous. There is no there is no sort of set of arrangements where someone who is a sham contractor is going to be better off than if they're an employee or if they're actually a genuine contractor. And keeping in mind, that those genuine contracting arrangements are designed for specific projects to have high skill sets where you can demand a higher wage. Like that's why there's such a big gap between sham contracting and real contracting. That's why that gap is even bigger from than it is from sham contracting to employment. Mm, because when you're a genuine contractor, you are actually empowered to say no. Yeah. Because you are in demand, you're being sought out for competing projects, and often, like in, in the case of my work as a writer, I have an agent who represents me in contract negotiations all under a union agreement, I should yeah. point out, and I'm also a member of the Australian Writers Guild, which is a wonderful union run by wonderful people uh, that have negotiated conditions for stage film and television writers mm. in this country. But that's quite an empowered place to be in. Mm. 
And that's if you're – and I wrote an article for The Guardian a few years ago about chicken pluckers mm, mm. and chicken pluckers who were being employed on these sham contracts mm. and meaning that they weren't being paid as chicken pluckers but as, they were being paid for every chicken that they plucked. Yeah. And it was an outrageous means by which these people's labour was being exploited because being paid for the hour of their time was a lot more valuable mm. than being paid paid per chicken or whatever mm. that was set at and not empowered. It was like either you sign this or there's no work for you. There are no competing projects around this. You know, it is it is absolutely terrible. And, look, increasingly, and, and credit to the union movement for raising these issues because we've seen uh, industry super funds come out. Uh, this week we saw Hester, which, of course, uh, I have a close association with, um, come out and say that, you know, th- the changes that are required to protect workers need to include their superannuation. You can't say that someone who is working in the NDIS in a care caring role um, is who's getting paid $32 an hour, which is supposed to cover their superannuation, their insurance if they get injured, uh, all of their penalties and overtime uh, is is earning enough money to actually make those payments. And we know the stats show $400 million in unpaid superannuation because of these sham contracting arrangements. That's a huge amount of money that will translate into tens of thousands of dollars per person when it comes time to retirement. In fact, in many cases, it'll mean people don't retire or retire much later than they would otherwise uh, so it's a huge systemic issue, and it's uh, it, it's companies exploiting loopholes. You know, it changes the the playing field. And I'm really interested to make note that Andrew Lee has become um, the minister assisting around employment workplace relations uh, because he's also the minister for competition. And I think Andrew Lee, who you know fairly well, has quite the mind for the structural impact of when one group of companies uh, in an industry gets away with exploiting loopholes, what that does to the whole market or the whole economy or certainly a whole sector, it totally unbalances it and Mm. it creates this race to the bottom. How quickly can you cut workers' wages? How quickly can you exploit people? And this this was my point about what's going on at the University of Newcastle. Yeah. You know, they're clearly working on strategy about workarounds for new industrial legislation that will maintain their advantage and we have to show solidarity with the the workers at the University of Newcastle, the academics who are taking strike action, and keep our eyes on the ball. Yeah, absolutely. And... there are going to be more changes in this space. The, the um, same job, same pay laws, gig economy reforms, uh, the care sector announcement, uh, review announcement by uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet. I think that was just last week. Clearly, there is uh, a focus on this. Uh, we've seen some of the bosses' unions uh, come out and say they're going to run ad campaigns and you know that they've already argued for cuts to the minimum wage. We, I understand that uh, is going to come out in uh, Friday, so we'll talk about that next week. Cuts to the minimum wage. Yeah, that's what they want real, in real terms, real terms cuts. And I know some people struggle to wrap their heads around this, but let me tell you, if inflation is 6.8% and the pay 
only goes up by 2%, you've gone backwards four. That's, that is a hard reality, but we have to understand that. Uh, and that's the argument they're making. They're saying that working people in this high-cost environment should go backwards, even though these corporations are making big amounts of money. Phil Lowe gave testimony today uh, to us. Ben's favourite person, Phil Lowe from the Reserve Bank of Australia. Ben just loves him, such a fan. The high priest of monetary policy, who quite frankly has now admitted that there is no wage price spiral, uh, but he also says there is no profit price spiral. uh, And people, I've seen economists now online today going, uh, so but, what is but inflation, inflation's gone up again and we've had 11 interest rate rises. It doesn't make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense because what you're doing is you're applying an ideology instead of a fact-based, evidence-based approach to managing our economy. We do need to have wealthy corporations pay more tax. We do need a budget surplus. We do need to invest in people to be more productive and do that by having corporations invest in the machinery and the skills so that workers can make those contributions. It's not worker productivity that's lagging because Phil Lowe said, oh, it's a productivity issue. It's so misleading what he says. Every single time he opens his mouth, I just think he's putting on the hood of high priestdom to just spout some nonsense that Milton Friedman's channeling to him from beyond the grave because when he says that there's a productivity problem in this country, there is a capital productivity problem in this country. There is a problem with the way managers and corporations and their executives manage capital, how they deploy capital, how they invest in people, how they invest in machinery and processes to be more competitive, to be more productive. Working people in this country have been working themselves to the bone and at the same time, these people, these lazy, overpaid, you'll notice there's not a lot of Australian executives working in corporations overseas or for massive corporations. In fact, Big corporations that are based here in Australia often import managers because of the laziness of Australian capital management. And quite frankly, until that gets addressed and until Phil Lowe puts down the hood and speaks truthfully. Put down the hood, Phil! And honestly, without the Friedmanite nonsense coming out of his mouth, we're going to have this problem. Frankly, I can't wait for his term to be over. There will be another interest rate rise. I'm sure there will. There shouldn't be, but I'm sure there will. Uh, and quite frankly, I, I, I've had enough. I just I think it's outrageous to now see those bosses and their unions and their ideological mouthpiece, Phil Lowe, try and make arguments for why wages should be cut while profits are high. There is a profit price spiral in this country. It is happening around the world. The the Wall Street Journal is writing about it, for God's sake. It is a true and real thing. The boss's pamphlet of boss's pamphlets. That's right. If there was ever a boss's pamphlet of boss's pamphlets. But somehow or another, Phil Lowe seems to think that, oh, no, that's not really real because it's only happening in four out of seven sectors. I mean... Come on, man. Like, genuinely, come on. Let's just be real here. The reality is wealthy corporate executives, massive owners of large parcels of shares are doing incredibly well, and they are gouging working people. And these loopholes around casualization, sham contracting, and labor hire are making it worse and worse. And until those laws are changed, 
until workers can come together and break that cycle, frankly, Phil Lowe should just sit back and stop giving the game away because every time he speaks, it's really, really clear whose side he's on. I feel I need to tell everybody that uh, while Ben is angry, he won't stay angry because our dog is being very cute. Ben, tell everybody how cute our dog is being. He's asleep on your chest. <laughs> is he or is he not the cutest thing you've ever He's seen? incredibly cute. I'm sorry I went on a rant there. No, no, I mean this is why I married you. I literally married you for the quality of your rants. I just, I, I, as you can tell, I feel very strongly about this. There are real people's lives. You can you can look at uh, the social media that the Australian unions is putting out and the, and the stories of nurses, the stories of disability support workers, of minors, of, of people in construction, right across, right across. And I, and I know, you and I both know that we're talking to people here on this podcast who know this because they're living it, right? But sometimes uh, these bosses' unions and bosses themselves and these institutional high priests, they just don't get it. Uh, and they don't care. No, because they don't think of us as people. They no. don't think of workers as people. Yeah. They think of us as a resource, uh, a cost. We're on the ledger. Human resources. Well, I mean, and this is this is exactly what Marx is on about in the series of Capital books, where he talks about you know the the alienation from your labour, which is the experience of being a working person, where you are you, you are paid for your time. What your output is is not owned by you. You don't sell the products you make. The corporation does, but it's also the way that that transfers into the way that you're thought about by your employers mm. as just a you are a cost center, not a human being, not a member of a household, not a member of a family, not a citizen in a community, let alone a citizen in democracy. And that's what's so enraging mm. is just the way that our humanity gets gets raised in this corporate calculus of you know, of ever expanding profit margin. Yeah, and that BHP exam. So some dreadful person like Elon Musk can own the future and fling cars into space and well, impersonate or no, sorry, support accounts that are impersonating Alexandria Ocasio Cortez on the internet and think that's Rollo Funny. I know. So funny. Well, look, you know, in that BHP example is the is the real classic where they're making the argument that uh, labour hire businesses that we own in order to shortchange workers will go under, and it's like, well, yeah, and maybe that's a good maybe thing. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that is a good that thing. That money will go to workers. So, you know, thank you. Stop threatening us with a good time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just. Boggles the mind that they think they yeah. can just make that argument. Anyway, uh, so shout out to any journalists who actually want to do that investigation because obviously the boss's pamphlet, uh, you know, reported um, that as a really bad thing if that happened because uh, they didn't make the connection that that was just money they were taking directly out of workers' pockets. Van, talking about putting money into workers' pockets, um, I want to talk a little bit about Aussie content on Aussie screens because I know this is an issue that you're passionate yeah, about. Yeah, this is my industrial reality. Yeah. Okay, so I have trained to do what I do, which is to create entertainment products and communications vehicles for the society we're in. Like I trained to do that longer than people trained to be brain surgeons. Yeah. And I have the hex debt, which I am still paying <laughs> off, by the way, to prove it. 
And it is an extremely intense process because these are rarefied skills that are used to tell stories and entertain people and and give people relief from the industrial drudgery that they get trapped in by the Mm. capitalist system. And yet in Australia, our capacity to use the resources that we have of not only writers but directors and editors and composers and actors and all of these other wonderful creative people who work in Australian film and television, those resources are being, if anything, underused Mm, mm. because we don't have strong and robust Australian content regulations. So what we mean by Australian content is laws from the government that say, hey, if you are a broadcaster or a streamer or entertainment provider, what used to be called broadcast media, Mm. uh, you are obliged to of your programming for that to be a percentage which is necessary to, uh, to create incentives within your operations to employ Australians to make Australian things. Mm. So 20% of your broadcasting must be Australian content, for example. This is very normal. This is normal all throughout the world because it is very expensive to make film and television. Mm. Um, And obviously in America where they've nurtured this industry and also, by the way, in Britain where they've nurtured this industry and in South Korea where they've nurtured nurtured this industry and various other places on earth, they create export products which they sell to international markets like Australia. Squid Game. Squid Game is a very good example. K-pop, which is in a different industry, I know. But in South Korea, they actually made, can you imagine, arts investment a part of their industrial planning. And if if you're wondering why people see K-horror movies and see Mm. Korean dramas and listen to K-pop, it's because their government actually had an industrial policy that went, hang on here, we can export Korean product to the world, entertainment product, and make money from it. That's not been happening in Australia. So we've been training all of these people Mm. to do this highly skilled stuff in, in the English language, which is, of course, you know, the, the language of American markets and English markets and various international markets, Canada, New Zealand, Ireland, all these other places, uh, and yet the Australian government has not maintained high and robust standards of Australian content regulation. Well, I want to talk about that because the the numbers on this are really, really interesting. So in 2016, the report, there was a report uh, that found that the screen industry contributed $3 billion in value to the economy, attracted 230,000 international tourists to Australia, and an additional $725 million in tourism. That's they're, they're big numbers, right? They're big numbers, given what we were just talking about. Now, when COVID hit, <sighs> unbelievably, um, well, maybe not unbelievably, the Coalition Minister, uh, Paul Fletcher, halved the amount of Australian content that commercial broadcasters had to make. It decimated jobs in the sector, almost completely removed kids' content, like Mm. just almost completely Mm. destroyed it. Now, the streaming platforms uh, have flocked to Australia, right? Yeah, we're one of the biggest markets in the world for streaming, like far larger than per head of- Like seventh, eighth biggest in the world. Yeah, despite our head of population. We love TV. We love it. We love streaming. We love it. Amazon, And they're making making an absolute fortune. And see, we've had Australian content regulations from 
commercial broadcasters. And the reason why I think like everything from Home and Away to Neighbours to McLeod's Daughters, all of those things, Offspring, have existed is because there have been obligations. Like if you're going to run that business in Australia, rather than just flood the market with cheap product you buy from the UK or from America. Or Romania. Or or Romania or wherever, you make content here and you employ the workers who are in the industry here. So- the, but the Liberals halved it. The Liberals the- halved the commercial. The I know the uh, the Albanese Labor government and Tony Burke, who's the Arts Minister, also Industrial Relations Minister, um, has a, a plan to kind of bring in uh, more in, uh, incentives and more investment obligations. And and the numbers that I've got here are pretty staggering. So if, if those streaming services had a 20% investment obligation. So, you know, they had to make, uh, it would mean they had to make 300 hours of Australian content a year, right, between them. So that's not a huge amount, like given how much content. But do you know how many people that employs? Well, I do, I do. Because it's in front of you. It's in front of me. I'm looking at it. And I'm and this is why my eyes, you can't tell this, dear listener, but my eyes are bubbling. Bugging out of my head here because it's like 10,000 jobs. 10,000 jobs. And it's not just, and this is the thing, this is what you were alluding to before. Remember the 19, remember the 1970s? I mean, you well, weren't born, I wasn't but, born but, but I was. Okay. Some so of our listeners were not. Some of our listeners, Marge, remember the 1970s? Um, or some of my former film students at the University of Wollongong will yeah. remember this period very well when the uh, Whitlam Labor government went. We're going to sell Australia to the world. We are going to pump money mm. into film production in particular. And you had what is known as the golden age of Australian cinema when we encouraged talents like Gillian Armstrong, Peter Weir and Fred Skepsey and Bruce Beresford and George Miller, and we created Mad Max and Picnic at Hanging Rock and My Brilliant Career like all, and mm. all of these amazing um, all of these amazing films that went out to the world and showed the world the uniqueness and, you know, the the mystery and beauty and incredible potential of this country. Mm. And it created an international tourism market. People overseas who saw films like Picnic at Hanging Rock went, I want to go there. That is an interesting and exciting mm. and beautiful place. I have never seen anywhere like it. And this is what you were talking about before, like Australian content when it's exported to the world actually has gains for us that isn't just in selling the content. It's about selling investment in other parts of our economy. Mm. And we need that. We want that. And we have the people to do it. We have these incredible art schools here, you know, this incredible, you know, intellectual environment for fostering high performance talent. And without the jobs here, all of that talent goes overseas. Yeah, and we've seen that, haven't we? Like yes, we've seen of course. Increasing numbers of Australians uh, appearing in Hollywood or appear, uh, appearing in British uh, productions, and I mean, that, and that's fine and that's great. Yeah, but it's also not about telling Australian stories. Yeah, or Australia being part of an international cultural conversation, and there's so there's the economic argument going: ten thousand jobs for Australian creatives, and X number of jobs in expanded tourism and, and opportunities, h- and hundreds of millions of dollars that Australians are paying in subscription fees, I mean, us among them, right, uh, to these multinational corporations that gets put back into Australia, into the pockets of those 10,000 workers that gets spent back in Australia. Like that's a yeah, and, good return. And this is the thing. And other countries do it. Yeah. Like France does it. 
Canada does it. Like all of yeah. these countries do it to nurture their own industries and to create export markets for their own entertainment product. And for me as an Australian, I'm like – I love this country. I think Australian values are great. I think Australia has some really powerful stories to tell mm. about egalitarianism and fairness and about and, and about perspectives on things like the land mm. and this incredibly beautiful place where we live mm. and, and portraying that image of why environmental protection is important and conservation is important, why maintaining like the traditions of Indigenous culture are important, mm. the world's oldest living culture is alive in this country and has insights about history and humanity and everything to share with the world. And Mm. that is a form of soft power. Like in a world where the United States is no longer the robust democracy that it's Mm. supposed to be, you know, Australian democracy, which is one of the strongest in the world, our amazing voting system. Mm. You and I talk about universal enfranchisement, compulsory voting all the time, the way that we are stable and participatory, you know, the way that we do encourage trade unionism and the belief in the worker as the equal to the boss, all of those things. That cultural message is actually important for the rest of the world to hear. I would much prefer Australian political values to be, you know, broadcast to the world than what presently passes for whatever the hell the dominant character of political engagement the United States or Britain is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's such a... We voted ourselves into poverty by leaving Europe is not, I don't think, a great message for the democracies of the world, apart from in the negative, like, well, you probably should have done that. And we elected Donald Trump, I also think is not not a great pro-democracy. I I couldn't agree with you more. There are so many great stories... Uh, so many great First Nation stories from Australia that just, you know, are not going to get heard on the world stage unless there are uh, unless there are uh, content quotas and these streaming services. I mean, they deal with this everywhere, right? They know that when they go into a market, and and maybe it's part of the reason they've come here early because I know that some of these streaming services do come to Australia before they go to other places. And you would have to think, you know, if I'm just putting my NBA hat on for a moment, you think, I'm thinking they're going- Baby, you never take that hat off. Come on. <laughs> I'm going, they're thinking, oh, well, we can try a whole bunch of stuff here. And if it doesn't work, we can always get out quickly because we won't have had to make investments in local content, in local production, in local talent, in telling local stories. You know, well, they're here now. They're established. Thank you very much. They've had that free kick. They've had that free ride. That's got to come to an end. They've got to pay their way. They, if, if you want to tell stories to the Australian population, you've got to tell Australian stories. Uh, not all of them. You can still tell stories from other places. I enjoy I enjoy stuff from, you know, believe it or not, I enjoy stuff from France, from Germany, from the Nordic countries, from Korea, from Japan. I mean, one of my favourite uh, shows recently, as you know, is a Japanese cartoon uh, about uh, Norway, Denmark and uh, England in the uh, 11th century. I just think we should be part of an international convers- cultural conversation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, and we have a contribution to make to that. We We do extraordinary things here. We were the first country in the world to elect a Labor government. We were the first place, not Germany, not the United Kingdom, not anywhere else. We were the first nation that actually elected a worker party 
to government. That's that right. happened here. And that's a, that's a virtue and a value worth exporting and worth entering into an international conversation. We have really interesting stories to tell, especially about environmental conservation, you know, and how are we going to, as a bushfire-prone, climate-vulnerable mm-hmm. country, ha- like the way of inspiring international collaboration is to is to promote these beautiful, delicate ecosystems we have and say these are the things that are on the line unless we can get international collaboration around climate agreements. Yeah, look, Van, we need to move on because there's uh, a couple of other stories uh one of the one of the things that's happened today in the parliament uh is that the voice uh to parliament is a step closer uh legislation has passed the house of representatives on a vote of 121 to 25 uh which means we are a step closer to going to a referendum uh attorney general mark dreyfus called it a fantastic result uh now it's on to the senate then the australian people uh you know, it, it's a shame that the nationals are so uh, so recalcitrant, intransigent. Yeah, in their bedded down in perpetuating inequality and disrespect. And and I want to say that there's a lot of media commentary that seems uh, quite skewed, in my view. The the polls that get reported on the Voice uh, actually show that the yes position is well ahead of the no position. Some of the numbers, sometimes people report these polls and they go, oh, well, uh, there's not a majority support for yes in every state. Now, that may well be true, but what they're comparing are numbers where the yes vote is at 48 or 49 and the no vote is in the 20s with a large number of people undecided. And that's fair enough. Or don't know. Or don't know. And that's fair enough, given that the actual mechanisms for the referendum have not yet even passed the parliament and we're only just starting the campaign, you would expect a bunch of people would be not really quite sure yet. Actually, I'm quite focused on the rising cost of living. I want to hear more about how this is going to improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. You know, and until those stories and that community discussion really starts to happen, we've only just started to see the public education campaign about the fact there's even going to be a referendum. So a lot of people getting asked in those polling uh, surveys won't won't even know that there's a referendum, won't know how a referendum works. I wasn't of voting age last time there was a referendum. There's whole generations of people. Yikes! But, you know, what we're seeing is this... uh, explosion of online trolls. Uh, and we know it's coordinated. Absolutely. Yeah, there was an article in WA Today that Sally McManus shared yeah. that was about the fact that there is a coordinated AstroTurf campaign. So an AstroTurf campaign is one that pretends to be grassroots. It's one of the great puns of political lingo. Yeah. And I just find it extraordinary. Like it's all, it's all such a bait and switch. It's all just such a, a chaos, flood the zone kind of tactic to make people confused, to target low-information voters, people who are distracted with cost mm. of living or God help them working sham contracting jobs who don't have the time to sit down and invest in the discourse of the referendum at the moment mm. and to sow confusion. So and the whole attempt of this is to get people who don't really know what's going on to go, well, I don't really know what's happening and I'm very confused, so I'll vote no because then nothing will change. And in fact, that's the line that the spokespeople for the no campaign are running. They are openly running that line that if you don't know, you should vote no. 
which is absolutely aligned to that flood the zone, create, create chaos, make it seem confusing. And it's a really straightforward proposition. We've talked about it on the show before. I'm going to lay it out for you once again. And if you get asked about this by your friends, by your family, by your coworkers, by your colleagues, by people in the street, it's a very simple proposition. Should Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people be recognised as the first nations of this country in our constitution? Yes. The answer is yes. Should they be consulted on matters that impact them, whether they be health, education, or otherwise, when the government is making decisions? Yes. Do we, as a society in general, want to be a country whose foundational document recognises that this continent on which the Commonwealth of Australia now exists has been has had a people on it, the oldest continuous civilization, 65,000 years old. Do we want to be recognized as that country or do we want to be a country that ha- that only believes it's been around for since white people arro- arrived on wooden ships and raised the Union Jack? Because if you want to be part of a country that's 65,000 years old... I vote yes to be part of a country that's 65,000 years old. You've got to vote yes. Well, I mean, this is the thing. And there are some arguments on the left which I would like to demolish. Oh, you know, uh, why are we having a referendum about the voice when we haven't implemented all the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody? Custody, a recommendation... For the voice is in the recommendations from the yeah. Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Oh, why are we having this before we have a treaty? Well, we need to negotiate a treaty and the voice is part of a process to set up the systems of representation so there can be parties to that negotiation. Mm. That's why we're having it. Let's remember the voice came out of the Makarata process. The Uluru Statement of the Heart came from Indigenous Australia. It is an offer to the rest of Australia from Australia's First Nations people, overwhelmingly, overwhelming majority of Australia's Mm. First Nations people represented in that process saying this is how we proceed towards justice and fairness and reconciliation and healing the breach and being able to talk about what happened here. That is the process that has been led by Black Australia and I think it's more than just Yeah, absolutely. And we should also uh, note as as white people that there is not uniformity, right? There is not, it's not homogenous. You know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are not a homogenous group. There will be differences of opinion, but the overwhelming majority position, 80% plus, I think Albo said recently 90%, nearly 90% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people see the voice as the next step on the path to reconciliation. And it is incumbent on us to go, there is nothing in our community, there's no, in, in our community of Ballarat, where we would get that level of agreement. You know, so the idea that some people go, oh, well, I, I saw this one Aboriginal person on television who said they were against it, so I don't think Aboriginal people want this. That is a, that is a misleading piece of misinformation designed to sow doubt when the vast majority support it. You've got to get beneath the get beneath the, the layers here because it is actually important. It is actually important to understand that 
in the rest of society. We would never demand 100% of people agree with something. There, you, you could not get 100% of people to agree on building a new children's hospital, right? Like that, we just don't, that doesn't happen. So 80% is a huge, overwhelming majority of any group of people who want a particular policy outcome that will help push their community forwards. And I think we absolutely have to support it. And it's also when people go, oh, yeah, what about the details? It's like the details are part of the democratic process. This is about setting up the mechanism. It is about the mechanism for the discussion. And How do we proceed with reconciliation? How do we proceed with treaty? How do we proceed with negotiations about maintaining the world? You know, Ben, I saw an extraordinary speech when I was up in Queensland, um, an absolutely incredible speech mm. by an Indigenous Australian woman called Rachel Boss. And she's incredible. She's a Ghana woman. Her background is in South Australia. The Ghana language disappeared. Mm. It vanished. And a group of people in South Australia, Indigenous activists, academics, spent 25 years pulling together every resource around that language and putting it back together and and brought the language back, literally brought an entire language and all of the cultural traditions of that language and the way that it spoke about, mm. you know, a place, geography, a people, tradition, history, all of those things brought it back from near mm. extinction. The most incredible, moving, incredible speech from Rachel Boss. And it, it it's a reminder that, you know, oh, well, you know, the way the conservatives are going, oh, it's so divisive. And it's like we're talking about the preservation of of a continent full of different cultures mm-hmm. and having having a conversation between modern Australia and literally tens of thousands of years of continuous culture and negotiating what that means and where we all go together as a multicultural community mm-hmm. into recognising the richness and that history and setting up processes for it. Yeah. And that's the... Argument. It's not about dividing one citizen from another. No. It's bringing together cultures within within Australia. And just to anybody who says, "What about the detail?" Just remind them: the office of prime minister is not in our constitution. It doesn't exist in the constitution. That's not what our constitution is. It is about setting up processes that allow us to govern our Commonwealth. And that's exactly your point, Van. You know, it's about how we bring people together. The detail of that is then worked out through the democratic processes. That's why we have a prime minister. Not, not, it's not in our constitution. Doesn't they didn't sit down and go? There'll be a prime minister and there'll be a treasurer and this is how many people. That's not what's in our constitution. Anyone who says, "What about the detail?" They are trying to get you to go down a rabbit hole. Van, we need to move on to the good news story, and then we're going to give our shout outs to. Uh, our cadre and extended reach supporters. Ben, tell us the good news because it's about hydrogen. It is. The CSIRO is trialling Australia's- I love how excited he gets about hydrogen, by the way. First portable off-grid hydrogen generator. So this is a new off-grid portable hydrogen generator. And thank you to uh, Daniel Conway, one of our listeners and supporters who sent me this uh, sent me this story. This is not the first time he sent us a happy news story, is it? He sends us good news stories all the time. He's a great supporter of the show. And if you want to send us stories, we're more than happy to have a look at them. We can't always get them on, but uh, sometimes they do get on. And this is this is a great one because a team of CSIRO, great public institution, uh, scientists, 
will build and demonstrate a unit based on patented technology to efficiently generate hydrogen from liquid carriers supported by a $10 million investment over six years from the advanced carbon engineering. Now, this allows uh, the use of a liquid carrier, allows hydrogen to be stored safely in tanks and transported from where it is produced, perhaps a solar or wind farm, to where the energy will be used. Now, traditionally, this has been uh, very uh, expensive and energy intensive. Now, the CSIRO researcher uh, ha has come up with a catalytic static mixer, which speeds up and better controls the chemical reactions without any moving parts. So this is a big uh, improvement over current what's called packed bed reactor technology. Some of this stuff you might have to look up if you want to know more detail about it. Essentially, it will enable hydrogen to be produced locally and on demand from the carrier with the added advantages of the carrier fluid being safely stored in a similar way to how we currently store diesel or petrol. It's a huge step forward. Uh, it'll allow us to store fuel in standard tanks and manage it using existing diesel or petrol infrastructure. This will help get the hydrogen industry moving. I mean, this is a huge step. CSIRO are pushing this forward. You know, this is the kind of stuff that we want to, we need more of. We need this kind of innovative thinking about what our energy future looks like, how it's going to work, how the infrastructure is going to be set up, how things are going to be stored, you know, so that's not left to free marketeers and whoever can make the most profit. And the CSIRO, such an important part of the Australian story of science and innovation leading the way once again. So big thank you uh, uh, to Daniel Conway for sending us that story and to the CSIRO. Congratulations on the uh, delivering on part of what is called CSIRO's Hydrogen Industry Mission. Fantastic project. Look forward to seeing it come to fruition. Van, our supporters helped make this show possible. They helped us grow. We're at nearly 900,000 downloads. Oh, so close to a million. We're getting so close to so a million. So close. Uh, and it's because of the support of our cadre who chip in 20 bucks a month, our Extend the Reach who chip in 10 bucks a month, our Buck a Week supporters who chip in a buck a week, uh, and our one-off contributors as well that allow us to grow our audience. People who don't have financial resources sharing, liking, commenting, talking about the episodes with their friends and family, you all make a contribution. But we do give a special shout-out to our cadre and our Extend the Reach because they do go that extra mile, put their hand in their pocket to help us reach those extra listeners every single week. Ben, our cadre are. Our cadre are. Joe Lockery, Steph, Karina Bali, Ajan Z. Campbell, Leona Gibbon, Shane Horsfall, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gal Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Matthew Hadley, Colum Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love You Work Yet, Yeti, and Andy Balden. Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Burris, Kristen Sakloner, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Curry, Greg Mellick, Kathy Birch, Fiona Mitchell, Ajay Carney, Christine Cole, Tamara James, Bromman, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Andrew Pascal, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Annie Honda, Matt Bush, Richard Sands, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cutright, Leanne Shiggles, I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers, Kerry Nash 20, Billy Three McCabe, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren Ash and Banjo, at Narungaman, John Sharp and Peter Bath, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou, and our extended reach supporters are Helen, Rosie Elliott, Lara, at Robert Notfield 1, Michael Wales, Sange Kelly, Darina, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel, at Crazy Gezza, John DeHaan, at Ange Fennell, 
Annie Wren, Ross Kenner, 888, Kathy Burgess, Melanie Dinning, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at K Not, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Reverse, Someone Vita W, Nandita Hannam, Maura Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Heinen, at Gold Vest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Ilian and Andrew, Ivis Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Keith Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunkum Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Load Body, Long Body, Load Body, uh, Sandy Bumgart, at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark at Vikembit, Adrian Valente, Matsuritsa at Carriedale 68, Frank Nehus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Richard Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bate. We love you all. Congratulations on making the week on Wednesday one of the most successful political podcasts on Apple Podcasts and in the great Commonwealth of Australia. It's so exciting and our enemies really <laughs> resent it. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this, uh, the 136th episode of The Week on Wednesday. Literally amazing. Uh, we will be back with The Weekend Wrap on Sunday where we will cover some more of the news of the week. And of course, Van and I will return for next week's episode, the 137th episode of the week on Wednesday. Getting so close to a million and because Ben has agreed that I'm allowed to throw a million downloads party, you have, you have agreed. Stop pulling a face. Mm. Uh, the more people who listen to the show, the closer we get to that. So please share us on all your social media. Until then, love you, Vanny. Love you too. Bye. Bye.